0: Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the presenting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy uh, here on uh, in Mountain Home, Tennessee, on the VA campus uh, at East Tennessee State University. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most amazing drugs of all time, Matnip. Uh, aliases include Gleevec or STI-571, uh, which you might remember from the uh, the previous pod from a while back on the iris study. If you haven't looked at that, as soon as you listen to the imatinib podcast, I'd recommend you listen to the iris, which is a landmark study of imatinib for CML. So this drug uh, has some interesting history. So the people we got to give a credit to are Brian Drucker at Oregon Health Sciences University, uh, a health scientist at O H S U Brian Drucker and then Nick Leiden who is at uh, a pharmaceutical company called Siba uh, Geigy G E I G Y There's a dash in the middle there So uh, there's a there's a nice there's a lot written about the discovery of matinib because it's you know one of the only drugs if probably the only drug to be on the cover of Time magazine It was a big deal uh, as as you heard in the Iris podcast and we'll h- hear a little bit more about coming up So Uh, Leiden led a drug discovery program uh, at this pharmaceutical company, and he had all these compounds that he um, was testing to block uh, cellular enzymes and cell signaling. Uh, And there's a nice uh, New York Times interview with Brian Drucker from 2009 where he talks about this. And so Leiden had asked Drucker, you know, how should we study these drugs? And Drucker says, well, it's CML, because we know the most about it. We know uh, and we, we really think there's that one on switch, the, the Philadelphia chromosome, that translocation of chromosome 922. So Leiden said a whole bunch of compounds to Drucker. He tested them in CML cells and found that STI 571 was the best. So the next step now would be in human clinical trials. Well, around this time... Uh, the drug company where Leiden works, Sebagagi, merges with Sandoz to become Novartis, which we now know today, fairly big drug company. They had a lot of TKIs over at Novartis, right? Well, Leiden left the company, and I don't know the story behind that, if he was left out, if he chose to left or whatever but he left the company. So now there are new bosses uh, who and this is the company that owns the patent for imatinib, and they're not so into this whole new concept of STIs or signal transduction inhibitors. Um, Drucker still is pushing them to do studies, but uh, you know his man on the inside, his champion inside the company, is no longer with the company. So He, he says, quote, in this interview, quote, after some ambivalence, they agreed to go forward with the phase one trials. Uh, I think they felt it wouldn't work, and they could just get rid of us afterwards. So, uh, if not for Drucker's insistence and uh, Novartis finally relenting to put a imatinib into studies, this may not have happened. And the very first time that they put it in human studies are like 30-some patients with CML uh, after interferon, and there's a complete hematologic response rate, and that's a normalization of their blood counts of basically 100%. Amazing for a phase one study to have a 100% response rate. If you get 10%, uh, you'll say, consider, you know you know, maybe we'll move on to phase two studies, or something like that, or 20%. You're amazed. 100% complete hematological response, pretty amazing. Um, and we know that this uh, ushered in the era of small molecule targeted therapies. All our kinase inhibitors uh, really owe a debt of gratitude to Matnib and Brian Drucker and, and Nick Leiden. Uh, so that's the history of Matnib. Really fascinating that uh, you know a merger of drug companies almost deprived us of access. Uh, to the study that that really you know supplanted a uh, matnib as as a breakthrough drug. So, as a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, what a matnib does, um, especially with regards to able kinase in the BCR able um, protein, um, it fits into the ATP binding pocket. That prevents ATP from getting in there, which is uh, the energy that kinase needs. Uh, to start that signal transduction cascade. The way I explain this uh, to students, imagine um, ATP as a key going into, uh, into a lock. And once the key gets in there, the lock can turn, the door opens, and then you can go on to the next door and open the next door. So what a matnib does is basically insert itself into the keyhole, and that prevents ATP from getting in there. And then you can imagine how resistance happens because the locking mechanism on the inside changes slightly, and now the imatinib key no longer fits and can get in there. Uh, so in addition to inhibiting BCR-ABLE, it also inhibits platelet-derived, platelet-derived growth factor, CKIT, which is uh, sometimes on a path report you'll see identified as CD. 117, and stem cell factor. Now, imatinib has 10 FDA approvals, and they all fall into one of those mechanisms. So for CML, or Philadelphia chromosome positive AL, it has to do with, it's, with imatinib's ability to inhibit BCR-ABL. Its ability to inhibit platelet-derived growth factor... Uh, gives an activity and then approval for the following, and there's there's a long list here. So myelodysplastic syndrome or myeloproliferative neoplasm with a platelet-derived growth factor receptor rearrangement, also hyper-eosinophilic syndrome or chronic eosinophilic leukemia, and then DFSP, dermatofibrosarcoma, protuberums, which is a skin cancer of some of the deep layers uh, of the skin. Its CKIT inhibition leads to its activity in gastrointestinal stromal tumor, stromal tumor, both in the adjuvant and in metastatic setting, and then aggressive systemic mastocytosis. There's an off label use in CKIT mutated melanoma, and there is one of those CKIT mutations where you can uh, overcome the resistance with a higher dose, like 800 milligrams of matinib. Uh, and then there's also uh, an approval for desmoid tumor, which I'm not sure what the mechanism there, and then chordoma, which is a type of cancer along the spine. Uh, you probably already know the typical dosing of imatinib is 400 milligrams a day. Uh, the preclinical studies showed that you need at least 300 to have activity. Um, doses of 600 and 800 were studied early on as, as mechanisms uh, to, or as ways to get uh, more uh, drug activity, albeit with more toxicity. But for the most part, 400 milligrams is the starting dose that everyone would use uh, nowadays. Although some leukemia experts would claim you really should use 800 if you're using a imatinib for CML, but I think most people use 400. It is metabolized in the liver by cytochrome p 450 a 4 so you do have those drug interactions to worry about with our common 3A4 inhibitors and inducers. Now let's move on into the toxicity. And if you've listened to the Iris podcast, you know that most patients, something like 80% tolerate this drug and are disease, not disease-free, but are without disease progression five years later on imatinib. So the drug is pretty well tolerated in the long term. okay? But you're gonna hear a lot of toxicities with imatinib. Um, now, some of this may be that the drug is a victim of its own success because uh, patients are on the drug for a long time, because it's used primarily for CML and they all do for the most part, barely. They don't, they don't all do very well, but most of them do very well, which means they live for a long time, almost near-normal lifespan now for chronic phase CML in the TKI era. So they do well, so there's longer follow-up, more time to see some of these toxicities. It may also be the reason we see so much toxicity described with madib, is that it's not a very clean drug. Uh, when we're using it for CML, we'd love it just to block bcr able, but it's also going to block, for example, platelet derived growth factor and C-kid and stem cell factor and probably some other kinases as well. To a lower extent, or to a lesser extent. So here, are the most common toxicities. So GI distress. That's one of the reasons we recommend patients to take it with food. That minimizes that nausea, uh, diarrhea, and abdominal pain you can have with imatinib. Uh That diarrhea is often self-limiting. It'll. Uh, the GI tract seems to develop tolerance to imatinib. Uh Rash is pretty common as well. Like 20 to 40% of patients will have a rash. Often that is self-limiting. Uh, it can. The drug can be stopped. And then restart it again after the rash subsides, or restart at a lower dose, and then increase back to 400 if they do fine on it. Uh, muscle aches and cramps or arthralgias, pretty common. I've seen it described in the literature, kind of as an opinion piece. Is when I encounter this, and I'm quoting a paper that I can't quote off the top of my head. When I encounter this, I stop a matinib for a couple of days and restart, and the muscle aches go away. Uh, and and that seems to be true. For some patients, other patients, uh, you know, they need to take some acetaminophen to go along with that. Um, and there is some some reports of some increased hepatotoxicity when imatinib is taken with acetaminophen. So uh, for the most part, uh, this is something that patients can kind of work through on their own. And um, they, they complain about it, but they don't complain about it at the point that they want to stop the drug or that it impairs their activities of daily living. Uh, fatigue, also pretty common. This was you know, the first drug we learned about how kinase inhibitors can cause that kind of fatigue that that we now know is very common to many of these drugs. And then periorbital edema or swelling around the eyes happens in a wide range of patients report from 15% all the way up to 74%. So those are the common toxicities. Now let's talk about uh, the serious toxicities. And if you go into the package insert, you'll see in in section five, the warnings, precautions, there's 14 uh, specific warnings and precautions. We're going to go through these Uh, with varying levels of depth because some of these were new to me I had never heard of so the first one's fluid retention and edema this includes that periorbital edema Um, usually it's not severe but some of this may respond to diuretics the next is hematologic toxicity so myelosuppression now this doesn't seem to be a direct uh, myelotoxic effect it appears to be um, a disease response So patients with chronic phase or accelerated phase CML will see more hematologic toxicity than those with chronic phase CML. And what we now believe is that this transient myelosuppression that you tend to see early on in the course of therapy is the bone marrow uh, responding with the CML cells dying and then normal hematopoiesis uh, beginning after you've reduced or cytoreduced the CML clones in there, which can take a period of, of several weeks. There is a concern for some Uh, in some communities, and one of my physicians is in this camp, is that you can see a long-term anemia uh, with these patients, Um, a mild anemia as well. The next one is heart failure, or a decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, is this a concern or not? I think nowadays we'd say it's probably not a concern. Now, there's a little bit of a history lesson here with regards to new drugs. So when a matnip comes out, We don't worry about, you know, cardiotoxicity with it. Now, then there's a couple case reports, a few case series, and we start to think, hmm, maybe this is a thing. And then larger studies tend to show that the risk of heart failure with imatinib is about the same as the general patient population. And that patient population, with regards to CML, is usually an older patient population. And the risk of heart failure with imatinib, is greatest in those with cardiovascular risk factors. That includes older age and other cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension. So, probably not a huge concern, but something to be aware of. Can see hepatotoxicity, so LFTs do need to be monitored at baseline and monthly, and then it's clinically indicated. Uh, there's a warning for hemorrhage, although this seems to be most common in the gastrointestinal stromal tumor or just population and probably has something to do uh, with the site of the tumor. Uh, GI disorders, so that includes, you know, the, the abdominal pain, diarrhea, things like that. Uh, the next one here is one that, I, that was new to be hyper eosinophilic cardiac toxicity, and this has to do with a imatinib is used for hyper eosinophilic syndrome. When the disease has invaded the myocardium, and then when matinib is started, some of those patients can have a decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction or even cardiogenic shock, so certainly uh, if you're using it for that rare hyper eosinophilic syndrome, using matinib is something to watch out for. And to monitor. The dermatologic toxicity, we mentioned the rash, that's common. That's not the reason there's a warning precaution in the label. It has to do with that there is a rare chance of having Steven Johnson syndrome with a matinib. Uh, hypothyroidism, and this is different than the hypothyroidism you see with like pseudonitinib. You don't see a hyp- de novo hypothyroidism, we'll say. You don't see patients taking a matinib and suddenly developing hypothyroidism. What you can see And the small studies suggest almost 50% of patients, um, and I might be wrong on that number, but it certainly is, is fairly reliable that this will happen, is patients who have had their thyroid removed and are maintained on a stable dose of levothyroxine. When they start at Matinib, they become clinically hypothyroid and their TSH goes up. And they often require up to a doubling of the dose of their old dose of levothyroxine. And one of the theories here is that somehow imatinib induces type 3 d which is part of our, our body's enzymes in regulating thyroid metabolism. Uh, embryofetal toxicity, we see this for many drugs. Um, because patients are on these drugs for a long time, this is certainly an important thing to counsel folks on. Uh, women should not try to conceive while taking imatinib. However, men taking are—it does appear they're okay to conceive without uh, any risk to birth defects for, um, for any progeny. A growth retardation has been seen in children and, and adolescents taking a imatinib, likely for Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL, although I do believe that that's seen also with steroid use in Philly-positive ALL as well. So um, you know, your peds, hemong folks would probably know more of that and encounter that more frequently. Tumor lysis syndrome could occur. Um, the next warning precaution is one that I – and sorry to back up to tumor lysis syndrome. We know about tumor lysis syndrome, how to monitor it, how to treat it. I won't say more about that. Uh, the next two toxicities were ones that were new to me. Um, driving or operating heavy machinery. Uh, there have been accidents reported in patients taking a manib either due to dizziness, blurred vision, or somnolence. I cannot find any other information about this. Uh, the FDA recently re- redid their website. I can't find the, the dear doctor letter that probably must have gone out when this was added to the label. So I don't have any other insights to add on this, unfortunately. And the last one is renal toxicity, and this was seen early on in the first studies with imatinib. Um, so at baseline, the average, and this is data from, I think, four CML studies and one GIST study, the average GFR at baseline for patients starting imatinib was 85 mLs a minute um, normalized to BSA. After a year, it drops to 75 mL per minute. That's a 12% decrease in just a year. And then it goes from 75 to 69 by five years. Now, that's a little bit more than one mil per year decrease from year one to year five. So that doesn't seem to be that extreme. But, you know, a 10 to 12% decrease in one year. Why would that be? I couldn't find any information of why that would be. Um, and there, there is one recent study that seems to try to make a connection between this mild decrease in GFR in patients taking matinib for long periods of time and some mild anemia, and that perhaps these go hand in hand uh, without affecting erythropoietin levels. So potentially an area for future research if you have a large CML clinic, a lot of patients on imatinib. Uh, there's a couple other just kind of odd things about imatinib. Um, if you look in uh, you know the package insert or look in any drug information resource, you'll see some odd electrolyte abnormalities like hypocalcemia and hypophosphatemia that's now thought to be due to a matinib has an effect of increasing bone formation, and, and I first became aware of this in a, in a case report we published a while back of a patient with gist who had the tumor removed, was taking a matinib, and then something came back, and what came back in this in the surgical site was not gist again. It was it was like it was like teeth. It was like bone. It was really weird. So you get looking at this, and you can see after patients a matinib, they have. This, this calcium and hypophosphatemia—that's consistent with bone formation. They have increase in uh, serum concentration of markers of of bone formation and it appears to have an increased osteoblast effect or an osteoblastogenesis, um, which is interesting. Which is interesting, right? Uh, another thing that's odd: matinib is now generic, but the price has not gone down a whole lot. And there's a lot of research. But not a lot of research, a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of talk about the financial toxicity and how the generic introduction of matinib has not helped all that much. Uh, so just to kind of to summarize this again, you know, is an amazing drug. It's a breakthrough therapy. Uh, you know, many clinicians are now using, say, disatinib or nilotinib first line, but imatinib still has a role in treating CML because patients do tolerate it fairly well. And while there are a lot of side effects, you don't tend to maybe have some of the serious side effects like pleural effusions that can be limiting for disatinib or the cardiovascular toxicity uh, that could be limiting for uh, for nilotinib, especially the QT prolongation. Um, so yeah, matinib it's just amazing. Almost didn't happen because of that merger potentially. Um, but there's certainly a lot of toxicity to go over with patients if you're doing a new oral chemo education, probably a session uh, that you can't really uh, convey all the important points you'd want to in one time and probably going to require uh, you know, a plan over, say, a month of, of, you know, weekly phone calls to say, hey, we didn't talk about this last time, but I also wanted to let you know about this side effect you can also see with imatinib. Uh So anyway, good drug. Uh, remember, tell patients they get with food. It'll help. Thank you for listening to Farm. To I really appreciate uh, all the ratings and reviews. Um, would appreciate some more. That's fine. Five stars. Give us a nice review on me. On the Apple uh, Podcast app, you can find us on Stitcher, find us on Google Play, SoundCloud as well, which is where the podcast is host- hosted. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetnip and the and the podcast at OncoFarmPod on Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.